Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 14. Last week, I spent most of the episode on the Jordan River, covering the river and valley north of the Sea of Galilee, along with the river that's south of the Sea of Galilee and eventually flows into the Dead Sea. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Unfortunately, I ran out of time before I could get to the Jordan Valley, which is where I'll begin this episode. And with that, let's get started. I covered last week how the Jordan River is essentially two separate rivers, the northern portion flowing from the mountains into the Sea of Galilee, and the southern from that sea to the Dead Sea. Also covered last week was how the northern flows through the Hula Valley. The Jordan Valley is home to the southern part of the river. This part of the water flow is only about 65 miles, about 105 kilometers long, at least as measured in a straight line. But rivers aren't straight. More on that in a second. In the strictest sense, the valley isn't straight either. In many sources, the region known as the Jordan Valley is much larger, stretching from the south shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way to the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba. This adds another 96 miles, 155 kilometers to the length of the larger valley. And it includes all of the Dead Sea, along with the basin that surrounds it. Also in this larger valley is the Araba Valley, a region I covered a few weeks back in Chapter 6, Episode 7. As much as possible, and since the southern portion of the larger valley has already been covered, I'm sticking to that part of the valley between the Seas of Galilee and Dead. This part of the valley is relatively straight and narrow, but, and like most ancient rivers, the course the river takes isn't exactly straight. As of this episode, the Lower Jordan is about 140 miles, 220 kilometers long. So, the winding the river does through the valley nearly doubles its length. As for how narrow the valley is, it averages only 6 miles, 10 kilometers wide. And at its narrowest, it's about 2.5 miles, 4 kilometers wide. In terms of elevation, this is the lowest river and valley in the world which should be expected since it ends at the lowest point on the land surface of the globe, the Dead Sea. But the tops of the mountains that surround the valley rise up 5,600 feet, 1,700 meters above the valley floor. Such a geographic contrast is one of the many reasons the valley, and the river below, has served as a boundary between nations for thousands of years. We see this in the text of the Pentateuch, as the Israelites waited 40 years to cross it and enter into the land they would come to occupy. Today the valley forms the border between Israel and Jordan, except in the extreme north where for a few miles, just as the river exits the Sea of Galilee, Israel currently controls both banks of the river. More on that in a few minutes. Due to the availability of water on both sides of the river, the valley has been, throughout history, an agricultural center, with both crops and livestock flourishing in the region. It doesn't hurt that the low elevation also leads to warm temperatures throughout the year. And it's this agricultural richness that has driven the history of the region for millennia. 
By about 3000 BC, archaeological evidence indicates that agricultural products were being exported out of the region. Inside the Old Testament, the tribe of Manasseh would be allotted most of the land in the valley, with Gad coming in a distant second. Several other tribes would have small pieces of territory in the valley, with all of those having at least some claim to the water from the Jordan. Tribes such as Issachar, Naphtali, Reuben, Benjamin, and Judah. But for Manasseh and Gad, the river wasn't merely a footnote, but key to the success of the people. In the case of Gad, and as told in Numbers 32, they were the herders of cattle, and the fertile land would allow them to continue with this. Manasseh was a bit different, with the largest, at least in terms of area, allotment of territory. Territory that spanned from the Mediterranean in the west, across the Jordan Valley, to the Aramines and Ammonites in the east. Of course, all of the tribal family members who lived in the valley certainly engaged in agriculture, either directly or indirectly through trade. In the outside record, the first indication of human settlement in the valley comes from artifacts that date to about 8000 BC. Genetic studies seem to indicate that the valley was a central part of migrations moving between Africa, Europe, and Asia, and the people who came through the valley were moving in all directions, some going south and west, others going north and west, and still others going east. Many of these people would settle in the region, becoming the kingdoms that the Israelites would face as they entered the Promised Land. Not only the Aramines and Ammonites to the east, but also the Moabites in the south. Then, of course, the Israelites would come to control the land. And with that, the history paralleled that of the kingdoms in general. A history you should be coming very familiar with. Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Muslims, and finally the Ottomans, which gets us to the 20th century. Of course, the Ottomans would side with the Germans, among others, in World War I, and end up on the losing side. In the last year of that war, in 1918, in February, the Brits would capture the city of Jericho in the Jordan Valley, on the west bank of the Jordan, just before it enters the Dead Sea. From there, they would fight the Ottomans in Moab, Amman, and Damascus, all eventually leading to the defeat of the Ottoman forces throughout the region. After the war ended in November 1918, the British would maintain control of the Jordan Valley as part of the territory known as Mandatory Palestine. At least the West Bank was under their control. Military skirmishes continued. Actually, the first of these was even before the end of the war, as control of the region was slipping away from the Ottomans. With the backing of the French and British, a contingent of Arab fighters took on the Ottomans, with the four most prominent Arab leaders sharing the name Hussein. The Brits were led by Lawrence of Arabia, and the Brits were more than encouraging of the Arabs to revolt against the Ottomans, telling them if they did, and if the Arabs defeated the Ottomans, the British would support Arab independence. At least, that's how the Arab leaders characterized the deal. The British had a slightly different interpretation. 
Then the war ended, and confusion reigned in the region, including a British declaration of support for a Jewish homeland. All of this led up to the four-hour Battle of Maesaloon, fought between the forces of the Arab Kingdom of Syria and the French Army of the Levant on July 24, 1920, in the anti-Lebanon mountains, about 16 miles, 25 kilometers west of Damascus. After this battle, the area east of the Jordan, but still in the valley, and presumably controlled by the British, was treated more as a no-man's land. The Brits maintained a tighter control of the area to the west. A year later, just after the Cairo Conference, a meeting called by the then-colonial Secretary of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, it was agreed that Abdullah bin Hussein would administer the area east of the Jordan, a new country called the Emirate of Transjordan. This was not an independent country, but was a British protectorate that was succeeded in 1946 by the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the same kingdom that controls the area today. And Abdullah bin Hussein, well, he was the great-grandfather of Abdullah II, the current ruler of the country. So goes the typical history of monarchies. The area west of the Jordan would remain mandatory Palestine and controlled by the British, with the Jordan River serving as the boundary. This was the first time in history, at least the history recorded in the past several thousand years, that the river served as an international boundary, and this led to the first use of the now common terms of East and West Banks. And before getting into the warm and cold conflicts brought on by the creation of the nation of Israel, first I'll cover what has been dubbed the Water Wars. Obviously, the Jordan Valley is primarily an agricultural region, and like any type of agriculture, water is king. The fertility of the land is covered in the Old Testament, and has been part of the written record in the thousands of years since. Like everything else since the Industrial Revolution of the past couple hundred years, the agricultural output from the region has increased. What hasn't increased is the water flowing into the Sea of Galilee and then to the Lower Jordan River. In the 1950s, the country of Jordan built a small canal that diverted water from the Yarmouk River to agricultural land. And while it didn't take water directly from the Jordan, it did take water that would have eventually ended up in the Jordan River. And this didn't go unnoticed. On the upside, the canal did increase the country of Jordan's output of fruits and vegetables. Between 1953 and 1955, the U.S. got involved to help negotiate a sort of peace, at least concerning the use of water in the region. This was after a plan put forth by the U.N. fell apart though that plan did serve as a sort of starting point for the next plan. The new plan was also based in part over the decades earlier Tennessee Valley Authority's arrangement of water distribution throughout the southeastern U.S. And the neighboring countries of Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria all signed on. But the Arab League did not. Despite this, the two major players, Israel and Jordan, continued to vocalize their support 
and abided by the water allocations the plan provided. Due mostly to this, the U.S. provided funding to both Israel and Jordan for water projects. Israel completed such a project in 1964, a system of canals, piping, tunnels, reservoirs, and the like, known as the National Water Carrier of Israel. Jordan completed the expansion of their canal system a couple of years later, and the two of these greatly reduced the flow of water down the Jordan to the Dead Sea, a reduction of over 90%, at least by some estimates. On the upside, they both made more water available for drinking and agriculture. Then, the nations of Syria and Lebanon, with support from the Arab League, and remember, the Arab League objected to the U.S.-aided treaty. Anyway, Syria and Lebanon began to divert water that flowed into the Sea of Galilee and then to the Jordan River. And the effect of this would have been to greatly reduce the water available to the furthest downstream user, Israel. Israel didn't take this lightly, and this was one of the precursors to the 1967 Six-Day War. In this short conflict, Israel would bomb and destroy the diverter dams, eliminating the problem, at least from their perspective. I'll have more on that war in a minute, but first, I need to cover the broader 20th century history of the valley. I know I've covered this to a sufficient depth before, but in the Jordan Valley, there were specifics that bear a deeper dive. For nearly a century, European Jews, well, really from all over, had been moving back to the Middle East, primarily to the area that they had entered some 3,000 years earlier, after the 40 years of wandering. This all came to a head as part of a United Nations plan in 1947, known as the UN Partition Plan for Palestine. This plan would have created a northern portion of the western side of the valley for a Jewish state, along with a southern portion to an Arab state. The resolution passed, and almost immediately, there were hostilities, conflicts that quickly escalated into the 1947 civil war in mandatory Palestine. In Israel, this is known as the War of Independence. For those Jewish settlements in the Jordan Valley, this was a particularly tenuous time. These settlements were essentially cut off from the other Jewish settlements and received their supplies via a single road from Nazareth. And these settlements tended to be small and dispersed, surrounded by Arab settlers. In 1948, Israeli-affiliated forces would capture Samak Tiberias, located at the northern edge of the valley and on the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. At this point, the British military provided protection while the Arab population of Tiberias evacuated. In subsequent battles, the Arabs continued to be defeated, all of this leading to enhanced supply routes to Jewish settlements in the Jordan Valley. As a consequence to all of this fighting, the UN Partition Plan did not get implemented. But soon after this, the nation of Israel declared its independence and at the same time, meaning on the same day, the British dissolved mandatory Palestine. The very next day, a coalition of Arab states, consisting of forces from Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Iraq, 
began fighting the Israeli army in a war that has become known as the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, a conflict that lasted about 10 months. In the Jordan Valley, Iraqi forces attempted to seize Gesher, a city in northern Israel, just south of the Sea of Galilee and on the west bank of the Jordan, and therefore in the Jordan Valley. Ultimately, the Iraqis were driven back by the Israeli forces, but the Iraqi army, with their tanks, remained in the region. Soon afterwards, Arab forces overran the village of Tel Or, destroying much of the village and a power plant in the process. Drastic times call for drastic measures, and in order to prevent the combined Iraqi and Jordanian forces from taking further villages, the Israelis opened the floodgates of the Danganya Dam. This released a great flow of water from the Sea of Galilee down the Jordan River, causing it to flow so deep that the Arab tanks could not cross it, stranding them on the east bank and preventing an imminent invasion. Though many Jewish settlers in the region were forced to abandon their settlements and fled deeper into the infant nation of Israel, some were evacuated by boat across the Dead Sea to the village of Sodom. Yes, that's Sodom. At the same time, Syrian forces attacked Jewish villages east of the Sea of Galilee, driving southward to the northern end of the Jordan Valley, with their tanks and aircraft leading the charge. They were stopped by Israeli militia forces armed mostly with small firearms, hand grenades, and Molotov cocktails. Israeli artillery, if you can call it artillery, consisting of four half-century-old cannons, arrived the next day and drove the Syrian forces back. With this, the Arab settlers in the region fled, and soon afterwards, the Jewish settlers returned. Fighting of this sort continued throughout the valley, on and off, for about the next year, until a truce was agreed upon in July 1949. Unlike other areas on the borders between the belligerent nations, in the end, the border in the Jordan Valley was essentially in the same place it had been when the entire conflict had begun. Of course, it being located on a geographic landmark, like in a valley and on a river, certainly helped to cement that status. Do note that at that time, this means Jordan controlled both sides of the Jordan Valley, and therefore had control over the West Bank. All of this would remain essentially the same for the next 20 years, until the 1967 Six-Day War, which I mentioned earlier. In that conflict, much of the fighting began in Jerusalem, but the Israeli forces were able to push the Jordanians back to the Jordan Valley. The Israelis then blew up key bridges across the Jordan River, doing this just as the overstretched Jordanian forces retreated to the east bank and the safer side of the valley. At this point, when the week-long conflict ended, the Israelis held the western and the Jordanians' eastern parts of the valley, with the river in between forming the new border. This led to West Bank Palestinian settlers fleeing Israel to Jordan, at this point, the so-called Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, made guerrilla-styled attacks into Israel from Jordan. Yasser Arafat was a leading member of the PLO. The Israelis considered these to be terrorist attacks. 
The next year, Israeli forces destroyed a PLO base in Jordan, and the Jordanian government was losing control of a small sector of their territory to the PLO. But they also reached a mutual agreement to resolve their differences. The agreement didn't last, and the PLO even attempted to assassinate Jordan's King Hussein. An all-out internal conflict ensued in Jordan, and the PLO eventually fled the Jordan Valley for Lebanon, but not before nearly half of the buildings on the East Bank were destroyed, and the population reduced from 63,000 to 5,000, either by being killed in the conflict or fleeing. In the 1973 Yom Kippur War between Israel and allied Arab states, the Jordan Valley remained relatively quiet, with most of the fighting taking place elsewhere. This was primarily due to Jordan still smarting from the support neighboring Syria gave the PLO as they fomented rebellion within Jordan's borders just a few years earlier. And the border and control of the valley established after the Six-Day War a few years earlier has remained essentially the same since then. In the years since, Israel has constructed numerous settlements on the western side of the valley, though a few of these are merely rebuilding settlements that were evacuated following the hostilities in the late 1940s. Do note that as of late, meaning since the 1990s, small bits of mostly disconnected territory within the West Bank have been allowed semi-autonomous governance by Palestinians, though the Palestinians maintain that they should be allowed complete autonomy and control of the entire territory of the West Bank. Also in the 1990s, Israel and Jordan signed a peace treaty that made minor border adjustments, mostly due to a shifting course of the Jordan River and historical claims. But it did have the effect of solidifying the border between the countries. Also included in the treaty was a water-sharing agreement. And finally, just late last year, in September 2019, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that the Israeli government would annex the Jordan Valley by applying Israeli sovereignty over the Jordan Valley and Northern Dead Sea. He planned on doing this if he continued being Prime Minister after the September 2019 Israeli legislative election. The next day, many international organizations criticized the plan. As of the publication of this podcast, in May 2020, Netanyahu remains the Prime Minister of Israel and continues to pursue this annexation. And that's it for the Jordan Valley, and likely more modern history than you realized you were in for. I'm going to wrap up this week's episode with a quick circle back to Chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Last week's episode was running a bit long, and while this next part was in the text, I had to cut it out and save it for now. That's the way it goes sometimes. And I'm covering it not because of its direct historical significance, but due to it being one of the more frequently quoted passages of the Old Testament, at least in Christianity. The second part is historical, at least in context, but there's really nothing to add to all of the topics I've already covered. The chapter in Deuteronomy begins with a continuation of seven, with Moses reminding the Israelites to rely and remember God, even in times of prosperity. And, in the chapter, there really isn't anything new. 
but a couple of things to take note of. The first is in verse 3, where it reads, He humbled you by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Next, there is something else. The first couple of verses, beginning with 7, gives us insight into what was important in that society. It reads, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land flowing with streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. Obviously, food and water were and remain important, but also, this was in the transition between the copper and iron ages. And remember, this transition was fluid, and since they, like everyone throughout history, really didn't know what the future held, they looked at it through the lens of the past. Copper had been the metal of choice for centuries, and this was only the beginning of the stages of iron showing up as a general use material, materials that today we take for granted. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the Greater Jordan Valley. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.